This is Rabbi Josh Uter of the Stanton Street Shul. Thank you for downloading this class podcast. These classes are provided free of charge through the generosity of the Stanton Street Shul community and supporters like you. If you do enjoy them, please consider making a donation to our synagogue's building fund on our website's shop donate page at www.stantonstshul.com. Good morning. It is Sunday, October 6, 2013. We are back with our shirim, our podcasts, and halachic process after a long break with the summer and the hagim. And I'd like to say it is great to be back here doing this. Great to have Dan back. You'll love to, you know, if you could ever move to Lower East Side and be a full-fledged member of the show, that would be phenomenal. Um, realizing that's not going to happen, we'll, you know, take you whenever we can. Um, to mention a few things about where we are for at least this part in the halakhic process series and where we're probably going to go for the rest of this class, which might be, let's say, four or five lectures at the most, and then we'll see how things change, is something that you might call in academia a critical terms class, meaning until now, we've approached things very systematically where you know, we started off at the very beginning with God giving the Torah, worked the way down for the source of rabbinic authority. Where we last left off, we were talking a bit about tradition. And there's probably a lot more that we could spend on tradition, but the truth is there are a lot of different variants on similar arguments in rhetoric that come out that are worth exploring too. In terms of the methodology, at the risk of oversimplifying, we saw already two models that are really the cornerstones of how Jewish law gets developed and implemented uh, in various combinations. So we saw Rambam, Maimonides' take, which, as I argued, seemed to be closer to the system that the Talmud itself structured for the oral law. And we saw in the Baalei Tosafot a greater tendency... Uh, and I'm using that term you know, very carefully here. We can argue to what extent how much, but certainly you find in the Ba'alei Tosafot a greater tendency than Maimonides to place a greater weight on what people are doing on the popular practice uh, and reinterpreting Jewish law in order to fit the current practice. Now, that gets us into a whole bunch of other bigger questions of nature of authority and who gets to say what, and instead of, you know, talking about the issue, you know, over and over again from a, you know, uh, and, and just basically not really advancing it, I think it's going to help if we view that question of authority from different terms that are often employed and to dissect those and to see what are some modern day equivalents of addressing the question of halachic authority, uh, given that we don't have a Sanhedrin. And these ideas are really going to be applicable regardless of the generation, whether or not people have actually used those terms. For the Ba'alei Tosvot in that era, they used more frequently as, I dare say an extra halakhic category, but one that you didn't find before so much. Um, although the truth is you might have had it in the Ga'onim too. You know you did have Ga'onim. About a minhag kadmon, about an old custom. That if there was an old practice it was considered intrinsically legitimate somehow or legitimate enough that it was worth defending. Again, a little bit hard to say exactly like what was the real basis for that because let's not forget, just because, uh, let me actually rephrase that a bit in my head, there is an important distinction between 
what someone might actually think and the rhetoric they use to employ their argument. Meaning, if I uh, think something is correct and I want to convince a certain audience, I might not use the language that I think is convincing. I'm going to use language that you think is convincing. Unfortunately, we can't get inside people's heads. So we have to take what people said at face value, even though pedagogically many rabbis will tell you they frequently, as part of their job, out of necessity, need to, let's say, uh, sanitize is is a little bit too cynical. Not even dumb down. I would say customize their presentation to their audience. And customize takes out some of the value judgments associated with it. But they will make the argument that's most appropriate so that two sides can say, well, here's what someone really thinks methodologically when really it's something else. But the ultimate goal, it's a separate long sum. It's an important point to consider from a human element. From an academic element, it is very difficult to demonstrate that because unless you build up enough of a paper trail, maybe you can intuit stuff. But since no one I know in academia are mind readers, many claim they are, but no one can actually say, here's what, you know, Tosfot was actually thinking when he was saying this. You may give good arguments one way or the other and say, to me, it seems this way. There's no way for you to tell. And the truth is, even if you ask rabbis that question today, they may not even be aware of what they're doing. Right. And even if they are aware of it, they still might not tell you. Um, I once asked a question and the answer I got that. Um, if they did it in previous generations, they were yeah. closer to Harsinai, therefore they had greater knowledge of what was required, mm-hmm. yeah. and therefore that holds. That being the case, we should get rid of all Rishom and Akhodim and go straight back to the Gemara. <laughs> we also discussed the, uh, that a little over Shabbat when we were discussing the question of Gilgulim, uh, reincarnated souls, and we actually don't go that way. There's no basis for reincarnation. Not re- By reincarnation, I don't mean resurrection. I mean a soul gets recycled somewhere down the line. So they also mentioned, like, that part's okay, but once you start messing with the space-time continuum of the soul cannot be reinstituted in your same time, like, it's kind of weird how that happens. And as I mentioned, it, it's a side effect of how your mind starts getting warped when you watch too much Doctor Who. Um, at any rate, you know, you have no mention of it in the Bible, right? The Torah. Uh, you don't have any mention in Torshav Alpat. Rav Sajagon said it was a pagan idea. But I've heard argument. Reincarnation. Reincarnation was a pagan oh. idea. No basis in Judaism was a pagan idea. That's Rav Sajagon. So he's pretty early to the Gemara, too. Then, much later on, you know, a few hundred years later, you know, four or five hundred years later, you have Nachmanides from Ban, who believes in reincarnation. So I actually have a relative with whom I made this point of, you know, Rav Sajigaon said, you know, this was pagan. And his answer was, well, once Ramban says it, it's part of our tradition. So make up your mind. And I'm not going to mention my this particular relative by name. I'm just letting you know this exchange happened. Today, going to discuss the question of consensus, mm-hmm. which is going to be an important part of a critical terms thing, because you're going to find I actually included a little bit of numbers here. The idiom of consensus is something that is employed in halachic rhetoric. Today, it's because this is a critical term thing, so you might be a little bit lighter on source material, but a little heavier on logic, because this is going to require a little bit of unpacking to see exactly what are the premises and what are the basis for making arguments of consensus. All right? 
So let's start off with it. I also, um, you know, intentionally did not pick any of the more incendiary language you're going to find about those who dare disagree with consensus. If you want to troll the internet for stuff like that, be my guest. Uh, but in part because I want this to be a serious discussion. Uh, I don't want it to be just like I'm picking out, a sh- not even a straw man, but like real people from an extreme position for the sole purpose of discrediting them. All I want to show today is, one, well, two, purpo- two things. One, that this use of this term consensus is employed in halachic discussion, certainly by modern-day rabbis and halachic authorities, and two, have a discussion as to what could the halachic basis be for that, and explore some questions that need to be answered in order to really hold of that seriously, or at least questions that, to my opinion, really need to be addressed if you want to say one ought to follow consensus. All right? That's going to be the outline of today. And this is going to be, again, only one segment of determining authority because people will use this idea of consensus to invoke here's like either some way that this is now authoritative. So let's start off at the very beginning. This uh, I don't know this individual. Uh, the name is Mark Wachowski. I found uh, an article of his in a book called, put in the bibliography here, um, uh, Re-examining Progressive Halacha, by Walt, uh, edited by uh, Walter Jacob and Moshe Zemmer. Those two I've heard of in other contexts in terms of what they're doing. So he has a very long introductory mm-hmm. article, and he has a section there on consensus, which I think really encap- encapsulates how it's employed. George, could you please start us off? Over time, a question that has long been a subject of lively dispute within the legal community will become settled. Uh, though the community may... Ha- have in the past entertained disagreement and divergent approaches to its solution, this multiplicity of views becomes becomes out of place uh, once a widely accepted answer has been arrived at. That answer now holds the status uh, of the law so that the burden of proof rests heavily upon those who claim that it is not, in fact, uh, the only correct answer uh, or even the best answer. This process occurs in Jewish law whenever the community of Paskin reach consensus as to the right answer to the previously disputed halachic issue. At that point, while students of the halacha will continue to study the rejected approaches, those will be regarded as purely theoretical possibilities. The law in the practice of halacha lema'aseh will be identified by most observers by most observes with the consensus view among Poskim. Other conflicting views, however, plausible they may be as interpretations of the halachic sources will be seen as incorrect. So as he's describing the phenomenon of consensus, at least in this paragraph, and he elaborates in the next one that uh, George is going to read, this consensus can actually be a determining factor, at least an important component determining factor. Um, One second... Okay. So, again, sorry about that little break. Uh, So here, very beginning, he's saying that multiplicity of views becomes out of place once a widely accepted answer has been arrived at. Once you reach a consensus, according to uh, Mr. Or, or I should say, I have no idea if it's Dr. Mark Wachowski. Yeah, but I don't know. I don't know if he's a rabbi or doctor. I actually didn't find that out. So, uh, if you're listening, please do not take that as a sign of disrespect. Take it as a sign of my own personal, I don't know, oversight, not figuring out who you are. Um, but um, right. 
So here, once it becomes as a matter of consensus, isn't just a matter of what's necessarily correct. It's a matter of this sort of ends the discussion where you could come up with better reads, it's just not going to matter. You now face a much greater uphill battle to change people's minds uh, and anything else that goes against the consensus, he writes here, will be seen as incorrect regardless of the merits of your argument. Continue with the next paragraph. Hold off on questions, because trust me, we're probably going to get to those at the end when I actually have a section called questions. All right? So hold off on this for now. Second. This continues one's procedural function. Precedential. Precedential, not procedural. Precedential. Function in halacha, a constraint upon the freedom of rabbinic scholars to derive solutions to legal problems that differ from the consensus view. Uh, we see evidence of this consensus throughout the history of Jewish law every time a community adopts through formal or informal process the practice of deciding their legal issues in accordance with a single posek or a group of poskim. Uh, we see it in the form of the rules for halakhic decision-making designed to create a uniform interpretation of legal sources uh, that, in theory, could be read in two or more different ways. And, uh, and we see uh, it operating on the substantive halakha questions as well, for uh, f- uh, forging agreed-upon solutions to issues otherwise susceptible to a variety of approaches. In a significant sense, what we today call Orthodox Judaism is an example of halakha consensus, a collective s- stipulation by a particular Jewish community to adhere to the particular halakha interpretations championed by a particular set of rabbinic authorities. Consensus thus enables the Orthodox community to identify itself as its own members and to the rest of the Jewish world. So that last line that I underlined here, and I'll probably go back when he posts this online and underline a few more key sentences, is actually a really wonderful summary of what Orthodox Judaism is, where it's basically the sense of consensus of what the community itself agrees upon. In this paragraph, he also mentions there's a certain practicality to having a consensus and leaving that as settled law, which is, what's a practical component of saying, well, this is the consensus as a matter of settled law? That everybody goes along with it. And therefore? Therefore, it's correct. Well, take it a step back. Therefore, it's correct is already a value judgment as to whether or not it makes sense. I'm talking about practical. On the well, ground, there's something practical about everybody agreeing to the same set of rules. Yeah, not just agreeing to. The, you're absolutely right. There's something practical about everyone being on the same page. Mm-hmm. Additionally, there's something practical about not having the same fight every two, three years. Mm-hmm. Right? Anyone here? I mean, I know you're on the show board, um, right? Are you on your show board? No. All right. Yeah. Anyone? Okay. So, has anyone ever been involved in an institution? I know this comes up in shul boards a lot. I wasn't. I wasn't a shul board. Okay. So, something that happens is, let's say there's an issue, right? Sometimes one person really wants something done in a certain way, brings it up, puts it up for a vote, gets declined. But it's this person's issue. Every single board meeting thereafter puts it on the agenda. Want to vote? Vote it down. Want to vote? Vote it down. Right? That's why procedurally there's this thing of you table a discussion like you can't actually bring this up for a vote unless such and such a thing happens. Since we don't have a clear-cut 
system for determining Jewish law, which is what gives us all these problems, the idea of having a consensus makes our lives in a way a little bit easier because we don't have to spend our time constantly fighting the same battles. Right? You've reached a consensus, almost that's it, and moves on. Now, that does leave open a problem, though, meaning that while there is a practical element that it allows for, let's say a debate comes out, you have a discussion, consensus is reached, you're able to move on. If situations change, there are times when a subject does need to be revisited, where previously held assumptions that might have been fundamental or crucial to reaching that consensus are no longer true. This comes up a great deal in the area of medical ethics, where new advancements are being made all the time. It even comes up in matters of you know, procedural halakha. And then you can also have these meta-discussions, which makes it much, much harder to advance things. If anyone's interested, I actually have, on the last source of the bibliography here, an article on consensus, where the guy and you goes through a whole bunch of different examples of opinions on how this consensus can work and when it can change in some there's even a dispute over the rules of how consensus can operate and under various circumstances. And its particular issue is on the Aguna problem and how, you know, just arguing consensus and leaving it at that is really not such a great thing. So I uh, suggest everyone read that article if you're really interested in. It's not so much a great straight through read, but it's wonderful if you're interested in citations. Questions on this component now in terms of the description of what is consensus, uh, including if anyone agrees or disagrees with Mark Wachowski's description of the phenomena. Not explaining about how it works, but in terms of describing what this is and some of its functions, as opposed to the underlying basis, halakhically. He's describing what is and not what ought to be, if, any, if that distinction means anything. Within orthodoxy, you yeah. have a range Modern Orthodox. Yep. Um, Question we'll address at the end. So hold off on that. It's on the list. I'm not. Okay. I'm not shutting you up. It's on the paper. Right. Yeah. But even if in terms of Nusach um, Svar and Nusach Ashkenaz. Yeah. Well, again, well, <laughs> trust right. me. Okay. Trust me. We're going to deal with that. You're at. Your question is wonderful. It's essential just for the later part of the class. You don't, you don't have to pat me on the back. Well, I'm not, but I, it's not patting you on the back. I just don't want to seem like I'm blowing off your questions. It's wonderful. Yeah, no, yeah. <clears throat> it happens so, so often that you tell me it's going to come up. There you go. Yeah. Uh, the different terms come to mind. Uh, community standard. Tzibur mm-hmm. uh, in... Mm-hmm. in, in Talmudic times. Wonderful. What's the history? Fantastic. So that is a wonderful point, uh, which he doesn't really elaborate on. Uh, He actually mentions it somewhat, you know, quickly here. The term consensus in this regard, I don't think should be confused with what you mentioned about community practice. To me, they represent something different. Community standards would be under a category of a minhagamakom in terms of what the popular practice is. The employment of the term consensus, uh, as Warshavsky and we'll see a few other people use later, don't use it in terms of a consensus of what Jewish people do. It's a consensus of poskim, of religious authorities. Case in point, uh, you might have seen the Pew study that people uh, have been, you know, like talking about a lot. I wrote about it this past week in the Rabbi's Corner. And I actually argued with a friend of mine who tried using the consensus model in the broadest sense. You know, you now have a survey on a whole bunch of Jews 
So use that to determine your communal consensus, mm. right? I think for me, one of the weirder facts was 60% of the Jews surveyed said that belief in Jesus meant you weren't Jewish. Now, you give that question a couple of decades, you could very have the consensus of the overall Jewish population. But that's when you look at the Jewish population. When you're talking consensus by way of law, right? this is something different than minhag Yisrael, than a communal custom, and becomes a matter of some unified authority, either somewhat loosely defined, which, again, the questions of defining the consensus is exactly something we're going to discuss in the later part of the class. But it's something that I think is reserved towards the elite as opposed to the masses. That would be the distinction I would make here in terms of how consensus is used. But then the question is, how, how wide does the body of post scheme... Uh, yeah, that's, that's what we go to the end, right? Okay. right? That, that's a phenomenal question, right. a detail that we're going to address at the end. And so that's the same thing when, 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 when it says in the Talmud, uh, you know, you, you don't maintain a, a halacha that the tzibur mm-hmm. does not uphold. Is that also minhag hamakom? I would call that a little bit different in terms of minhag hamakom as much as uh, what Dennis referred to is not everything the Sanhedrin says becomes set of law. There has to be a component of communal acceptance, or at least for that generation, in order for it to become settled. That, I wouldn't say, is a matter of consensus either. It's a matter of, here is law, it's almost procedural as opposed to consensus. Now, whether or not people took votes on a mass level, I don't know. It could just be you know something that was done informally. But again, that what you're describing, while in the Talmud, I don't think is how the term consensus is used in modern-day halacha. Like, for example, or can you take source number two? And I know for those who are interested in electricity, here's a good source for you. <laughs> Read source number two in the English. This is by Rev. Avad Yosef <laughs> in Yechava Da'at, volume one, uh, response of 32. Therefore, even though there are those who are lenient in igniting electricity on Yom Tov, one does not protest to them strongly, for specifically there are those who do so in several communities outside of Israel based on the rulings of their rabbis. In any event, it is very proper to explain to them in a gentle language that according to the opinion of the majority of our later rabbis, there is to be strict not to ignite electricity on Yom and we are to follow the majority. So there's no word explicitly consensus in Hebrew that I know of. Uh, Maybe it's just because I don't know Hebrew that well. Um, But the language that's more employed is rov rapotenu, or rov poskin, something that Mark Wachowski mentioned here, which literally means rov, means majority, right? So that's also an important term, like about in terms of quantifying what consensus is. In halakhic terms, majority just means 50.01%, or point something, a little bit over 50%. There's a debate in the Gemara in Hulin, about whether or not a 50-50 split right down the middle is considered a majority. People try to you know, bring up conclusions. Straight Gemara, there's no real conclusion to that. So the very minimal criteria for Rove is a little more than a half. And we're actually going to see that in the next source. Right? But here he's saying, you know, people might be relying on it, but the majority of, you know, as he puts it, Rove Rabotenu, the majority of our decisors disagree. Now, something you need to know about Ravavadi Yosef, especially in Yechaved Da'at, this was, uh, uh, this is, I should say, a collection of his writings that was really compiled from a radio show he used to do. 
And for those interested is as an introduction to responsa literature, it's something I, I really recommend because the Hebrew is much easier than you'll find in a lot of places. Something else you find that he does is he cites a whole lot of people. In fact, many of his responsa, you could say the substance-wise, are footnotes, are references. And he quotes a whole lot of people. So when you say like a majority of people, you could actually read um, one of Rav Avadi Yosef's Tishuvot and start counting them up. Well, there's one, two, three, four, five, six on this side, and there are eight on this side. And he'll actually have a much wider range of people. So when he says rove, at least based on his own methodology, he'll in fact give you in the tshuva numbers. He's not going to count them up for you, but he's actually going to tell you all the people he's relying on. And it is quite an impressive list. One of the things he was really known for is not is having just a really remarkable, comprehensive knowledge of a whole lot of things and employing all of it. So, During what period of time did he live? Uh, he's still alive. So, he was actually just on, he just had a medical condition uh, and came out of it. So he's still, I didn't check what date that particular chuva was written, but he's still with us. Here's another example. He knows what electricity is or seen. He's experienced it. Uh, considering, yes. Let, let's leave it as a yes. All right. Okay. Not going to avoid this. Yeah. Uh, Megan, could you read source number three on the side? Yes. T- I'm sorry, Madison. I apologize. Madison, please read source number three on the second page. This is a more of a colloquial use. Not Ravavadi Yosef in this regard is exceptional. Only two sides, one page. I said, a little bit lighter on the sources, but we're going to have to try to unpack a little bit more in the discussion. Madison, please read source number three. This is from an article on the use of electricity in Shabbat Niyomto from an R- the RJJ Journal number 21, co-authored by Michael, Rabbi Michael Broyd and Howard, Rabbi Howard Jackter. The consensus of opinion accepted by nearly all rabbinic authorities is that turning on an incandescent electric light on Shabbat violates a biblical prohibition. Although the precise prohibition is in dispute, most authorities maintain the prohibition is lighting a flame and a minority contends that the prohibition is either cooking or makeba patish. means uh, completing an action or completing a circuit. Here, uh, the, rhetoric, the language used by Rabbi's word and Jactor here is usually the most common, where people just say this is the consensus and don't necessarily provide evidence to support a claim or even define a consensus. I put in a little statistic here under did you know, simply because um, you know, one reason why I like quoting the RJJ Journal is a few years back I picked up their CD, which has the first 54 articles conveniently on one location. So it's very useful for classes. Uh, and you also had some really you know, wonderful articles back in the day. Uh, so I put in the word consensus, and in the first 54 journals, it appeared 114 times. Frequently, um, I, this also doesn't account for how often it's done in the same article. I can say that Rabbi Broid uses the idiom consensus quite frequently in his writings. Uh, I looked into that a while back, and he uses that term a lot. In tradition, uh, in the about 180 issues, the term consensus appears in 195 times. I got 195 hits for that, which you can say is a little bit lower, but not everything in tradition is halachic, right? So uh, the RGJ Journal 
might even be a better sample because it's the uh, the real uh, uh, name of the journal is the Journal of Halachic Contemporary Society. So when people, you, when you find that term consensus, you see how often it's used in a halachic context, right? So here they're saying is that the consensus of opinions doesn't really say who says what are the dissenting views is this is what it is. Now, maybe you can say, as a matter of survey, right, if you're just talking about a survey piece of literature, which, you know, is a perfectly fine contribution, <clears throat> when you're going through a bunch of sources and summarizing it for, you know, an audience versus a pure academic one, where you actually go through all the details and heavily footnote. Uh, some things in the RJ General are well footnoted, others are not. Um, but there's only so much you can do. I mean, you can, but they, in fact, don't. Unfortunately, you see just how easy it is to throw out this term consensus without any sort of justification for it and without asking all of the big questions that we're going to ask in Section 4. Who, what, how did you get to that conclusion? And let alone, what does it mean practically? Section number three needs to explain a bit about what might be the halakhic rationale for consensus, meaning we understand on a practical level Right? Consensus allows you to end a discussion and move on and set up a policy. You know what you're doing. That's it. But do you have to follow consensus? However you define it, let's assume for the moment you can define consensus. Do you have a halachic obligation to follow the consensus? And if so, whence does it derive? All right. Mark, could you please read sources number uh, four and five? This, in fact, uses the language that was employed by Ravavadio Safe in the response that we found. First, Exodus 23 2. I give him a moment. Oh, me? Yeah. And do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. Right. So that's the translation of Loti Yachare Rabim Laraot, Lota Ana Al Rivlin Tot, Achare Rabim Lahatot, which is taken to mean, you know, colloquially in Halacha, as you go after the majority. <clears throat> read, source no, uh, Dan, read source number five. For Sanhedrin, this is San, uh, Gemara Sanhedrin 3b. About what does Zacharei Rabbi Mahatot mean? Has it not been taught? Rabbi Eliezer, the son of Rabbi Yossi the, the Galilean, says, What is the significance of the phrase to incline after many to arrest judgment? The Torah implies, Set up for thyself a court of uneven number the members of which may be able to incline to one side or the other. So the way that the Gemara interprets this verse is that in order for you to follow the majority, you need to have... an number. Uh, exactly. Because remember we said earlier, 50-50, we don't know if that's a majority. The only thing that counts a majority is anything above 50%. So uh, you may remember from when we did our classes on the judicial system, um, you know, you, the minimal number for like a bait dean is three. One takes an opinion, another takes an opinion, one guy in the middle, you know, makes the distinction. And let's say they can't reach a resolution. You remember what Ramba, how Rambam phrased that You keep adding in pairs so that you constantly have an uneven number. Right? So that way you never have a pure deadlock. Okay? Now, that this, by the way, is an important clarification. This will actually lead in really well into the next question about according to this, if you're following the line of Ahare Rabbi Mahatot, it seems, according to the Gemara, that applies specifically to a Beit Din, specifically to a court. 
Now, if it does apply specifically to a court, there are a couple of qualifications that might not be applicable. One, you already have universal, well, I shouldn't say universal acceptance, but when you have a court, the litigants have already accepted the judgment of the court. So it's not just a consensus of random people. It's a consensus of two views. Like you already agree that this body is something to which you're going to adhere. Two, um, the, in Rabbi Dr. Abel's um, article that I uh, cite at the bottom, he cites a source that Rabbi Vadi Yosef himself cited, an opinion, I forget who, who said, that Ahare Rabim Lahatot applies when you have a court because people can argue face to face. Meaning, when we have this discussion, right, around this table, and we talk about sheer, all the people here are arguing on me. You don't know it, but you are, right? You're going to ask questions. I'm supposed to give answers. And we can, you know, reach some sort of resolution. But if we're just writing position papers, right, I write something, someone else writes something, maybe he saw what I wrote, maybe he didn't, maybe I'd be convinced by what the other guy said, right? And that's going to be a question that we're going to deal with in the fourth uh, section. So before you ask your questions, I'm going to ask three big ones here. And I'm, we're going to take it one at a time. But only ask your question if it's not going to be addressed in one of these three headings, all right? One, does consensus equal correct, correctness or infallibility? Two, how is consensus determined? And who is included in the equation? Three, does the rabbinic application of majority regarding court cases automatically bestow the same halakhic authority on later halakhic disputes? That last question we discussed a little bit briefly. Any of your questions, do you think they'll be addressed in one of these three things? Yes. Okay. So, first, correctness, does consensus equal infallibility? Or, or does consensus equal correctness, yes or no, your opinions. We can go around the room for this. Okay, not necessarily because okay. the consensus of whom it has to be, even if it's uh, rebellion, mm-hmm. if they're not knowledgeable about the subject, how can they come to a correct, infallible answer? Wonderful. Lauren, what do you think? Does consensus of, uh, equal correctness? No, not necessarily. Madison? No. No? Reminds me of the old line about the Supreme Court. We're not foul, final because we're infallible. We're infallible. We're not right because we're, right. we're right. We're not final because we're right. We're right because we're final. Yeah. Uh, definitely not. All right. Uh, but I mean, there's so many questions attached to it. That is true. So let me throw out a few other things here. Does consensus equal something that is correct? I would agree with all your opinions here that the answer is no. Uh, to get slightly political here, it's one reason why I get really ticked off when people say the consensus of scientists uh, regarding global warming as if that should end all discussion, right? Because scientific method, you know, doesn't really work. That well, like you actually do experiments and you test it. And for a long time in this country, the consensus was that homosexuality was a disorder that needed to be cured. So if you really believe on consensus, well, then what happened? Did reality change and was, I think it was 74, that it got out of the DSM-3 uh, to DSM-4 or something like that? Yeah, but that, that's because knowledge changed. Mm. Knowledge, but then... More which expert in that subject. Which means that with that alone is a good example of how consensus does not equal correctness. I'll give you another idea. Uh, and this is something I would have loved to have studied, but unfortunately had no ability to actually put together this research. Before you actually had um, Facebook, or there was a field in, uh, that I actually took in a business school in Chicago called social network analysis. 
not social network in terms of what you have online, but how people interact with each other. Uh, I said with a guy, a professor, Ronald Burt, who's written extensively on the subject, and one point that he made that really stuck with me was the idea of a closed group. Here's how it goes. You've all heard the term a click, right? Mm-hmm. So the way you define a click is this. Let's say you get a group of five people, and you ask them, who are the four people you're closest to? And everyone in the group picks everyone else. There you've got a click. That is a closed group. The main people you speak to are the same people everyone in the group. And he threw out an idea there that one of the phenomena you find in a click is something called a test and echo phenomena, which is when you throw out an idea, other people bounce it back to you. It's not necessarily other people agreeing with you independently. They're just bouncing back the idea that you threw out there. So when you talk about a consensus in a field, how do people necessarily... I mean, that gets into part of the substantive question about developing it. Is it done in a vacuum? When you have scientific research, right, the way that I test your experiment is, you tell me exactly what you did. If you did a good job, I should be able to reproduce it. But what about studying Torah? Is Torah really done in a total vacuum? It's impossible, because everyone's coming to it with their own biases. Furthermore, if you've got several people from the same school of thought that wind up coming to the same conclusion, is that really considered a consensus? Because basically you've got the same people following the same method, using the same formula, reach the exact same conclusion. Why should that be shocking? All right? First of all, if you don't go along with the crowd, you're not in the crowd. Ah, now that gets into two, and that is probably the most important, crucial point you can make on the term consensus. How is it determined and who is included? So let's say we take it out of the realm of Hamon Am. We take it out of the realm of the massive, as Dan distinguished earlier really well. And you turn it in just to say rabbis. Right? An artificial distinction to be sure, but at least you can say rabbis have gotten some degree from some institution institution indicating a professional status, at the very least. But we can't argue today about who are good rabbis and who are bad rabbis, let alone getting into denominationalism. So how do you determine who counts as for a consensus? Keep in mind, so, and this is, of course, really important. To give you um, an example, this is something that I, ha- uh, I had with one of my rabbeim, where he said, you know, no posek, how was it, um, uh, uh, no serious posek would say that you can make havdalah on a on an electric candle. And I said, but so-and-so said that. It says, ah, goes to show. This brings up, you might, you, I think, might have been hinting to this, my favorite logical fallacy, and yes, I do have a favorite one, called the no true Scotsman fallacy. Anyone know how this works? Yeah? Yes. You've said it so many times. Yeah, well, for the people who aren't here, it's the argument of, um, well, no true Scotsman would say or do something. So-and-so does it. Therefore, it proves he's not a true Scotsman. Mm-hmm. The same thing could be said by consensus. How do you know what's a consensus? Practically, rhetorically, it turns out to be some consensus. And again, minimally, it just needs to be a majority, but it doesn't even, you don't even have to quantify it. You just say consensus. Who's going to check you up on it? No one's going to say, fine. You, Rabbi so-and-so, wrote in your piece, consensus. List me all the names for and against. Right, they may list two or three, because that's all they saw. Or they rely on someone else. So the very statement of consensus, which ought to be something empirically verifiable, is never even challenged. 
But then let's say you do challenge it. Why didn't you include him? Why didn't you include them? Oh, because they're not part of the consensus. Well, why not? Because you left them out. So it's really a consensus of people whom you happen to deem are consensus worthy. Or, tautologically enough, you would have to say there's some consensus over who the consensus is. And then it just gets into this, you know, absurd circular reasoning of the authorities that we take seriously say so, and therefore we do so, but using this idiom of consensus employs that pragmatism from part one over here, less as a means of halachic argument, more of a means of social coercion, more of a means of trying to get people on the same page by saying everyone does it, by everyone, I mean everyone who we care about does it. Therefore, if you don't, as you put it well, you're outside of the consensus and therefore outside of what you call Orthodox Judaism as a community. But in terms of a halakhic thing, well, we just said earlier that consensus doesn't imply correctedness. And we covered cases where even the Sanhedrin Hagadol can make a mistake, so a consensus could as well. What this would mean then is this idea of consensus wouldn't have a halachic ramification, but it would have a social ramification. So if you believe in Orthodox Judaism, capital O, capital J, as you know, almost an extension of God himself, well then yes, violating the consensus is one of the biggest sins you can possibly do. But if you're trying to understand Tehran, trying to understand the you know, best understanding of halacha, just simply relying on consensus isn't going to work. Because what you need to do is say, well, I've got a whole bunch of halachic authorities. And let's say by authorities, people who are scholars who wrote and published on the field, who make certain arguments. Do these arguments hold true? Either, as you might say, based on contemporary reality. Maybe the situations have changed. Or maybe it's all based on a faulty reading. Right? You have a consensus that's based on a bad text. You know that it has a, you know, you're basically saying, well, the premise was all false. So everyone agrees with a false premise. Does that make it right? No. But the better question is, do you have to rely on it? And if so, how? If you're going to say, and therefore you have to listen to the consensus, it is my opinion that that really only applied to a Beit Din. And there are certain, the fact that you've already accepted a specific body, well, then yes. Now, maybe if you had a vad in a community where a bunch of rabbis got together and the community said, we're going to follow the vad, the vad takes a vote, decides this is going to be policy for the community, well, then there you go. But that's because of the sort of an extension of a marita atra of a particular locale. But in terms of when people try imposing this on a global scale, well, consensus of whom? The range of people, Rabbi Ovat Yosef will quote, is much greater than the range of what many rabbis will bother reading, which is, you know, part of it shows just how exceptional Rabbi Ovat Yosef is. Part of it, though, shows just how weak an argument from consensus is. You got a list, and thank you for jotting down the list. So let's knock him out. Is Rabbi Yosef the chief rabbi? Former chief rabbi, yes. Now head of the Shas party. Or it's unclear who's in charge of it, but spiritual leader, Sfardi chief rabbi, former Sfardi chief rabbi of Israel. Yeah. So Dan, you got a bunch of questions, and thank you very much for writing them down so we can knock them out. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, so when you talk about who's counted in the consensus, that's yep. already. I mean, you've talked about that, and it's a very slippery slope. But um, 
What does it include past authorities? Can somebody say, well, the consensus of the Rishonim or or or, or, or of the people that I respect in, yep. in the last five hundred years? And that is part of your problem. I mean, not your problem, but the problem of our consensus of who counts. General generationally <coughs> is huge. And I'll do you one better. Let's say you find a treasure trove of documents from established people that would tip the balance of consensus. Right? Let's say you go to the Cairo Geniza, and all of a sudden you find a whole bunch of new data. Right? So does that new data, it's like, wait a second, if you just relied on consensus, I've got 50 other rabbis that disagreed that got buried. What do you do with these? Wonderful point. That gets, you know, that is a wonderful extension of the logic of the question, who counts? Which Rishonim count? Uh, and how many count? And do you give Rishonim greater weight than Achronim? Right? Now, I don't argue from consensus. These are arguments that anyone who says consensus opinion and relies on that for a psakalach in a public forum. I'll tell you this rhetorically, if I'm in a shul, right? I mean, I happen to be in a shul. But like in certain cases, as a shul rabbi, it's a lot easier to have a discussion of consensus opinion and use that because pedagogically you just can't spend a lot of time going through the intricacies. But if you tell people, well, this is what you know all the great rabbis have settled, many people will buy that, and it's a really easy way you know, to have simple discussions. So that's one case in terms of the use of it as rhetoric, of using it in a very narrow educational pedagogic situation because rabbis have a whole lot of other things they've got to deal with. Then you've got the other, extre- uh, other end of someone has an opinion and differs from your sense of consensus. Whoa, now what do you do? If you're on the internet, you write lots of blog posts and you call people lots of names, right? But halakhically, can you say that this is incorrect? And then it gets a little bit more challenging. Again, for those reasons. What else you got? Well, this sort of touches on that, I think, and, and that is, um, can consensus be changed? And if so, how? Mm. That is a phenomenal question, too. Can it change? So according to this guy, Orshavsky, um, it is incredibly difficult to do so. Because the first guy raises an object, the first guy to raise an objection is obviously a minority and can be laughed at. Right, and then the question also becomes: What is considered a legitimate minority opinion? Meaning, there are certain, like, remember the language of Ravad Yosef was rov, right? Rov Rabbanim. All you need is a majority. Today, you're going to find people every now and again rely on a minority opinion. And I don't just mean the way conservative Judaism does that in terms of their votes with the Committee on Jewish Law and Standards. I mean, people say, well, there's an opinion who holds X, Y, Z, and therefore he's a yesh almilismo. He is someone on whom one can rely. Even though it's not just, could be a minority, might even be a dat yachid, might even be a singular opinion that certain individuals will say, well, this counts as a plausible option. If you're following strict consensus to the exclusion of anything else, now maybe you can say, well, actually, uh, that ties into another thing. Not just in terms of how is a consensus determined, but let's think about when is a consensus determined. We don't have a court that takes votes. You have, like, the RCA gets together, not to say that the RCA is in any way, shape, or form you know, the representative of all Orthodox Judaism, let alone all Judaism in the world, when is a consensus reached? Meaning, 
we can have a discussion on something. We can argue for a while. At what point do you say, yeah, we've already made up our minds? We could still be arguing it. So we had an argument here on electricity who says, you know, nearly all rabbinic authorities is that turning on incandescent light on Shabbat violates a biblical prohibition. When was that vote taken? When did you decide to close the book? Right? People, to my knowledge, have been discussing electricity since it came out. So you're going to say, well, all the people we decide to accept say no, and therefore, that's it. We're not going to have any more discussion on this. Now, maybe you can say, well, this is what everyone said for a thousand some odd years without debate. And then you can say there's you know, clearly enough thing there that that's a lot that you've got to overcome. right? But to just simply say, well, we've reached a consensus. Well, who are we? Right? And why did you, who got the right to determine that consensus reached discussion ends per Wachowski's description of the phenomena? So let's not forget when is a question that I actually didn't put down here, but that's is equally important. He's got a couple more. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure it's worth arguing about these. But It's uh, not worth arguing. These are worth bringing up. My point is that the argument of consensus, while employed often in halachic literature, especially popular halachic literature, does carry a certain pragmatic purpose, but it is halachically weak. Once you try unpacking the basic logic of, you say consensus, what does this mean, right? Without getting into some sort of circular reasoning or some sort of tautology that can be reduced to, I'm right simply because I say so. And that is a very, and that's why when people just leave it as consensus, take it at face value if it's a public lecture, but it's something that you need to ask more questions on to say, well, why? How does this consensus work? Explain it. And if you keep getting blow-off answers to that, then the person either isn't taking you seriously, in which case I wouldn't take that person seriously as someone on whom to rely for halachic arguments. Because if you ask follow-up questions to say, why, like, please give me more meat as opposed to everyone does it, that's ultimately the core of Reconstructionist Judaism, right? That's, you know, Judaism is civilization or the Catholic Israel thing, that it's just some amorphous, this is what we do, however you define that. Not anything halachic, not anything legal. Or at least, and by which I mean, not to say that people under certain communities don't have a halachic obligation. Meaning, if I, as a, the Rav of the Stanton Street Shul, issue a ruling of psak halacha based on what people call consensus, that is then binding on the Stanton Street Shul, not because of consensus, but because the Marid Atra said so. The question then becomes, for when someone gives the argument consensus and say, you are not allowed to argue with it, whoa, very different statement there. So that's a very important distinction to make too, where the authority of consent, you might have to, you might be bound by a consensus, but it's not because of an intrinsic value to consensus. It might be what a local authority might then decide to follow. I don't, uh, maybe my attention wandered. I don't think you answered the question about how does a consensus get changed? Yeah, I didn't answer that because there are no real rules to this. Is there a historical example? In terms of what consensus is, there are no rules. Just because you have evolution, these, there are not hard and fast set rules to this. But they become. 
for example. Uh, How do they become? The, the no, no, one second. How do they become? Yeah. Because more and more of a consensus of the community ad- adopts it. Yes. For example. You, you uh, do realize that you just use the term consensus to define yeah, consensus. Yeah, okay. That is the definition of, you know, circular reasoning that gets you trouble. <laughs> so to say that consensus is determined yeah, on consensus no, a, doesn't help. For example, there is a consensus in the orthodox community that you don't pass the Torah through the women's section. Is there? If there, there is. You Prove go, it. You go into Brooklyn and Prove your I'm asking you to validate that statement. Well, uh, okay. What I'm saying is that they have a consensus. Yeah. But there is in more modern Orthodox rules uh, the evolution. Yeah. Years ago, they would have said no. Uh, now, then more and more shuls do so. So then you're redefining consensus. You can say the consensus of modern Orthodox. Or I could say, hey, it's also an evolution. the consensus of the Stanton Street shul. Why doesn't that count as a consensus? But I think what he's talking about is not the creation of the consensus. He's talking about something different. He's saying there was, that perhaps, that he's at least speculating, which I have no reason to believe it, that maybe there was a consensus 100 years ago, that maybe 100 years ago or 200 years ago, it, that maybe there was would have just been unimaginable anywhere. Yep. Possibly passed okay. the second. But then what you are describing then, So we're seeing the breakdown yes. of the consensus. So then what I would then the I would answer that with what Rashovsky, you know, introduced us with mm-hmm. You're not making a halachic argument. You're making a social argument. Mm-hmm. You're making a communal argument. You're not making an argument that is based on halacha. Now, again, when we determine halacha, right, as opposed to social stuff, we're talking about things that determine what you have to do and what you are not allowed to do mm-hmm. under penalty of, esta- of established Jewish law mm-hmm. that must be demonstrated. Mm-hmm. So to say, well, you're not allowed to go against consensus, however you want to define that, I have a right to ask, Explain that, defend that position. A, define consensus. B, give me the halachic basis for that consensus. And really defend the, your argument about why I'm not allowed to do that. So if you want to tell me that consensus changes as community changes, but well... But also because argument changes. For, for example, it, it was just understood that women could not touch the Torah. But right? maybe no one but was yet, making a halachic argument either way. But, but once we allow the notion that the Torah cannot become tummy by a woman touching it, that begins to change the way we think about things. Mm-hmm. And if you want to say that the, the, the consensus changes, but you know, that's an evolution as far as I'm concerned, because we use what we learn right, to change what we do. While you might be correctly describing an evolution, what you would not be able to do is come up with hard, fast, set rules that would be universally applicable. All you could do is retroactively state, well, here's what happened, and say, well, then that must have changed the consensus. But does we, that always hold true in every situation? But we no. could We could invent that. I mean, that's to say, we don't really know, I don't, certainly I don't know, the halak history of women passing a Torah around, or if there is any. But let's assume hypothetically that if you were a Vaidio Yosef in Naviotius of 1800, and it, let's assume, and I doubt this is true, but let's assume there actually, he did, my hypothetical Rav Yosef, you know, encountered a couple of dozen responsa on women uh, passing around the Torah, and they all said it was prohibited. Now, fast forward 200 years, our same same rabbi, or whatever, you know, let's assume he's a time lord, but, but somebody like him, He's, he also finds two dozen responses written in the past 50 years. But instead of being 100%, it's, you know, maybe, it, maybe it's 50-50, maybe even if mm-hmm. there's still a majority, it's a much closer call. 
then that my hypothetical situation then might be would be the answer really of a consensus breaking down. As long as more people say so, but you still beg the question of who counts, mm-hmm. right? Example, right. like you could argue, like Orthodox rabbis rarely, if ever, read responsa put out by the conservative movement, mm-hmm. right? Let alone address it at all. They're not considered part of the consensus, right? Even though most conservative responses are based on the exact same mm-hmm. sources mm-hmm. that the Orthodox people quote. Mm-hmm. So there are some people that just people don't read at mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. Rev Moshe Feinstein, mm-hmm. while you know venerated here immensely is, you know, there are other places where it's like, eh, you know, wrote, save, like, might not even be part of the discussion. Mm-hmm. Just how it is. Another case of, you know, communal relativity. Mm-hmm. So the point is here, people are going to employ this term of consensus. Mm-hmm. But again, it's not a halachic argument. Mm-hmm. It's more of a social argument. Mm-hmm. And anyone who wishes to argue that it's a halachic argument is free to try to offer a systematic explanation. If they can't, then it sort of begs, you know, this whole tautology thing of, well, whatever you're following isn't a matter of law. It's a matter of the culture that you happen to accept, which if you want to follow that is fine. But then you're in no position to tell other people you're not keeping the Torah of God or Chazal. Now, if you want to say that you're incumbent to follow another Torah or another religion, so to speak, mm-hmm. go ahead and do that. Right. But if the whole purpose here is follow, you know, to follow what God wants you to do, as opposed to, you know, following the crowd here for everything, it's an important component to consider or at least consider what would make your community any more or less valid than anyone else's. Uh, isn't there the argument that the Torah is no longer in heaven? No yeah, it was given to a Sanhedrin, which we spent several months right. explaining, here are the rules that they set up for how Jewish law is supposed to evolve, not what you think uh, the way halachic is supposed to evolve. But at the end of the day, who has a right to... I mean, when you talk about authority today in terms of determining halacha, not so much on a local level mm-hmm. where Shul hires a rabbi, but when someone says, this is law to which every Jew must adhere today, and or a universal law to the point where if someone disagrees, you would have to say they're wrong or violating Jewish law, is a very, very difficult thing to say. Because that means, in some way or another, imposing an authority on someone else. And that has to be justified somehow. If I do that myself, it's usually, I go back to the Gemara and say, well, here's what Chazal said. This was their decree. Yeah, their decree is binding. Could you interpret it? Yes, except that's not what they say. And you need another Beit Din to overturn it. That's not my authority. It's based on the authority of Chazal. And again, we spent several months justifying the authority of Chazal. That's what I'm saying is what Jewish law is, as opposed to this is what it is because I personally say so. I don't come up with things. I might argue halakhically why something ought to be the case, but that doesn't mean I have any right to say you have to listen to me or you have to listen to Rav Moshe Feinstein on a particular issue. And from what I've seen of Rav Moshe Feinstein, he wasn't the type of person to himself impose himself on other people in that same way. If you ask him a question, he'd tell you an answer. But from what I've read, he wasn't the type to say, all of Klal Yisrael must follow and obey me. His followers, or I shouldn't say that, some of his followers Hmm. might approach Jewish law that way. But he himself, to my knowledge, did not. A very important distinction there. Yeah, I uh, remember as a kid, uh, holding the door for him, mm-hmm. 
and he always acknowledged, he always said thank you. You know, where there were other rebbeim, this was their right. They walked right past him. Yeah. So, so thank you for that. More critical terms next week. Be well, and for those interested, our current Jewish questions class starts this Wednesday again with a three-part introduction to Eruvin. So for those completely unfamiliar with it, come to this class and we'll give, I think, a very good overview, especially for those with no background. Sorry about that. In a post, after I turned this off, we had a bit of a, an addendum that needs to be added here. You're absolutely, and which is why I want to put on tape, because this is a crucial point. You're absolutely right. You're not going to have consensus for a lot of things, and you're going to have lots and lots of debate. The problem isn't debate. People are entitled to their own opinions, and they're entitled to try to convince people why their opinions are correct. And we are going to admit we are going to argue. That isn't the issue. The issue is saying, because of some artificial consensus, Mm -hmm. that discussion is now ended, Mm -hmm. and anyone who disagrees is therefore wrong. Mm -hmm. right? Because then you're saying one side's opinion is now de facto, or even de jure law, Mm -hmm. to which everyone must adhere. Mm -hmm. Argue to your heart's content. In fact, continue arguing. Some point, someone might come up with a better argument, might have better evidence mm-hmm. to back up their position, mm-hmm. right? So we're not talking about, you know, there's always going to be one answer. Mm-hmm. There's always going to be machloket. Mm-hmm. Consensus is a way of shutting down dispute, mm-hmm. usually in favor of a side to which someone is already agreeing, mm-hmm. without actually having to go through the pesky trouble of disproving why another side might be incorrect. Mm-hmm. Because you're just saying, well, everyone agrees on this, so it must be true, mm-hmm. right? There's something, you know, that's mm-hmm. implied, which as we, you know, dismissed at the, uh, at the beginning of that last section, is really... Incorrect. Just because a lot of people agree on something doesn't mean that it's true. Or, as I throw out kind of flippantly, if it was all about consensus, about authority people following someone, then we should all be Christian. Because find me a rabbi who has had a bigger following than Jesus. Okay? His consensus of followers is much bigger than anyone else. So if that's all you're going to rely on, well, boom. You know, grab yourself across and do whatever. That's not how halacha works. And with that, before I get myself into more trouble, have a good one.